Hey, how's everyone doing? Welcome back in to Talking Catholic with David O. Gray. Um, this is a live broadcast of Talking Catholic, and I'm talking with Patrick Coffin of Coffin Nation. And amongst other things, we'll be talking about what happened to the Jesuits. What happened to them? How did they go from being missionaries to miscreants? Of the Catholic Church? How did they go from inspiring students to live their Catholic faith to inspiring students to um, give a middle finger to the Catholic Church in their faith? So, um, so this may be good, be getting good. So, make sure you guys have your popcorn ready. You know, I have mine. And um, if you have any questions for, for Patrick as we go along, just drop them in the com box and um, I'll make sure I get them to Patrick. So, uh, let me bring him in now. All right. Welcome into Talking Catholic, Patrick. How are you doing? The invite. Appreciate it. Yeah. Um, so I know I brought you on to talk about what happened to the Jesuits. But mm -hmm. um, before we get there, I just want to talk a little bit about you and um, what are you doing now? Well, where do I start? Which of my kids do I love best? Um, <laughs> in the September of 2016, I started my own podcast and uh, media platform called Patrick Hoff The Patrick Coffin Show, which drops every Tuesday. And uh, my wife and I run a membership site called Coffin Nation, as you mentioned, now by God's grace in over uh, 25 countries. So Coffin Nation was founded as a kind of supplement uh, wheelhouse to support the the uh, podcast and the topics that we talk about, mainly to do with rec uh, recovering the the uh, DNA. This here, here's the way I put it: recovering the DNA damage done to the culture. Uh, obviously, first of all, through sin, but also bad political ideas and intellectual isms that have a, a rotting effect on the brain. So we we finish each other's sentences. We do uh, live webinars, uh, commentary you won't find anywhere else on what just happened in light of the gospel lived without compromise. That's the compressed version of coffinnation.com. Yeah. Um so I'm not a member of Coffin Nation yet. So what do I so what's the what's, what's what's the benefits that I get if I could join Coffin Nation? What's the benefits? There are three levels of benefits. There's uh what we affectionately call the cheap seats, the orchestra and the VIP box. And uh, everyone has access to the, the full video iteration of the podcast, which is about 60 minutes. And these are people who are either sages or survivors of the culture war. So someone who's been banned, deleted, persecuted, uh, ritually shamed, who has great lessons to impart. Or someone who's uh, more of a sage, less than a survivor. Someone who has uh, insights into the DNA of the country, the founding documents. Uh, how does the Catholic... How does Catholic affect us as voters? That kind of thing. Um, I do a weekly um, session. It's a webinar that we call Ask Away Thursday. Uh, I have a weekly commentary called The Coffin Report. There's a closed forum and a Facebook page. And, and it turns out that 98% of, of baptized Catholics who try to live their faith in a serious way and a joyful way are all struggling with the same thing. We are literally not living in separate silos whether you're in Australia or Bahrain or Italy or the Philippines or Japan, all countries where we have active members, um, we have the same basic struggles. Our kids are leaving the church or they're asking questions we can't answer or some crazy left-wing idea has begun to mainstream itself. So 
really the biggest benefit is learning from the other members. I mean, I'm cute and clever enough, but we have some very impressive, literate, natural-born teachers through their own uh, life experience and their their commitment to Christ. It's uh, I feel a little guilty because I have a blast. I learn so much every day <laughs> from our members, from their various comments and, and insights. Yeah, man, that sounds great. Um, I remember, I, I think I first met you, man, many years ago back in Youngstown. You were still with Catholic Answers back then. Mm -hmm. I met you in Youngstown. And so um, as a convert coming to the Catholic faith, you were like one of the people I always used to listen to in the evening. So, <laughs> okay. Um, so Great. If you have trouble yeah. sleeping, I'll put your rate out. <laughs> Is it weird for you being interviewed? Because I know you interview a lot of people. Is this weird for you, me asking the questions? Is this is this odd? Um, I'm much more used to it now. When I first started, having done hundreds of interviews and rarely being an interviewee, like a, a subject, yeah. I was nervous the first time. I, I could hardly breathe. I'm like, I can't control what the next question is. I'm going to sound stupid. They're going to figure out the fraud. But um, I know what it's like on both sides of the fence and just try to get out of my own way and just be direct and without artifice. But I, I enjoy it, especially with your stuff's good. And you and I have done some great streams together. So it yeah, feels, cool. feels good. So, um, so, yeah, this is Patrick Coffin, as many of you guys know. I see a lot of you guys are logging in to the live feed so that's awesome if you have any uh, questions for patrick as we go along make sure you put them in the comment box and as we move along in the show i will make sure i get them to you so i'm going to hit a brief introduction to the show again here and then we'll come back we will talk catholic with patrick about culture about some of his favorite interviews and of course about what happened to the jesuits i'll be right back Yeah, so Patrick, from like 1872 to 1878, and really historians can really, you can really, you know, you can really make that a wider margin, but that's what a lot of historians agree from 1872 to 1878. The Catholic Church was engaged in a very intense ideological uh, war that the Germans called culture conf, right? Mm -hmm. um, or culture struggle with uh, Prussia, Germany, well, the Kingdom of Prussia, which, you know, it, it had a lot of countries involved in that. Um, but it was, it was. I think the war, the ideological war, it was predominantly over who's in charge of the church, who's in charge of the state. And I think this may sound weird to a lot of people who have grown up in the United States that there was a time, it may sound weird that uh, you know, people who are used to the idea of separation of church and state, mm -hmm. that the, the Catholic Church has never voluntarily relinquished control of things like public education and marriage, the advisement over moral matters. They, they've never voluntarily relinquished those things to the state. Yeah. But this this culture war between the church and the world ha has never really ended, right? I don't think it has ever ended, nor nor will it end. You're talking about the enmity of the spirit of the world against the spirit of Christ. They are at perpetual odds. There's no rapprochement between the city of man and the city of God. You can have dialogue. You can come to some kind of common ground where you can. But uh, ultimately, it, it is a battle over the hearts and minds of human beings. Are we glorified pieces of electric meat, as the materialists say, 
or do we have a body and a soul and through baptism we can become sons and daughters of of god the father that's the main fault line in the culture war i think and from that fault line flows everything else from our belief about the the purpose and meaning of sex and whether sex has any meaning at all and those who believe that uh, human life has a purpose we're made for something else someone else we're made for the glory of heaven and uh we're going to end up in eternity either way it's going to be in hell or it's going to be in heaven and so if you if you reject all of that then this world is a very flattened world with a short ceiling and you see this reflected in in buildings that came also came out of germany after world war one called called bauhaus architecture which heavily influenced the design of american homes after world war ii flat roofs sort of straight everything's functional there's no beautiful or like uh cornices and artifices you go to any town in italy today david and to a certain degree germany and spain too even public things like garbage cans are elegant uh, the doorways to public buildings, libraries, museums, uh, trolleys, uh, even airports used to have uh, the, this this fact in, in mind when they were designed that the users of these buildings, these public spaces, have great dignity hmm. because they're they're by baptism, they're they're king's kids. So the, the human person is more than a taxpayer, a voter, a bot. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Um does it come down to i think a lot of because of who we're created by god um we're creating his image and likeness god is one i think the human being intends to oftentimes in disordered ways tries to imitate god right and we're always drawn to unity you know we always want this unity we always want this false oneness you know i think catholics of course we know that the true unity um, the universality of the Christ and his church. But this pursuit of false unity, does that have a relationship toward in, in regards to the culture war? So many ways to go with that question, David. The first thing that comes to mind is, is the false unity represented by pornography and its mainstreamization, where you have, uh, you know, millions of pixelated light images forming uh, a human body and uh we're i mean the devil is a brilliant liar uh bad liars make it obvious good liars kind of lather on enough truth to make you buy into it yeah. and so the false intimacy that's that's set up by by pornography just to use one example creates an ex a, a kind of human person that's emotionally stunted that can't can't self-donate to a real woman because real women can say words like no Whereas, you know, if you're acclimated to porn images, you're just using the images of women, which are by definition artificial, to, to build up your own, uh, not only your own ego, but also to flee from anxiety and, and pain and whatever loneliness you might feel. I had a spiritual director in, in Toronto, uh, rest his soul, Father John McGowey, wrote beautifully about emotional maturity and that kind of thing. And he, he wrote about uh, porn use. Uh, masturbation in particular he said it's not a tension reliever it's a tension revealer oh wow and so what does jesus christ do about that well he presents himself in his body and through eucharistic adoration we're worshiping the true body the true right. body and blood soul and divinity of christ right. is is what we're made to do 
This is right. the the beatific vision, except that it's, it doesn't happen in time, so it never gets boring. Yeah. And um, so I, I would that in in a just to piggyback on that in light of your question, that uh, the mind was made to, for truth. We're we're built to receive the fullness of truth that's revealed mm -hmm. to us in Christ and also through human reason. And the devil loves to give us half a truth, a fake truth, in a way, truth with an asterisk that will never satisfy. In fact, over time, as you know from everyone who's ever sinned knows from experience, it's a, it's a promise that never, never fulfills itself. It always yes, creates never, a never deeper void. Yeah. yeah. Yes, never satisfied. You know what? When I used to teach um, theology, I used to tell my students, was, I think it's a very hard thing to accept that... Um, you may agree with this. You may, you may, I'm, I'm sure you will. I just have to say it the right way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I think it was Guido who said it, um, that everyone, there was no one can do um, evil in a sense. The, what do, what do you say? Was the subjective or no one can do, no one can do bad. Everyone wants to do the good, right? Yeah. But evil the, is not a substance. Right, but but the good that we pursue is always this sub, this subjective good. So mm -hmm. in our mind, we have to justify. Even if, if, if he used the example of a bank robber, if a, a bank robber decides to rob a bank, he always thinks of the good things that he's going to do, the money he can spend, um, the things that he can buy. He always he, mm -hmm. we always have to justify what we're going to do by thinking of the good things we can do. If, I mean, we can think of the grossest things that you know we we know as human beings. But the person who does them, he, he, he does not do the bad. He is doing the subjective good. And that's yep. because we were created by God who is good. In essence, we can never do anything bad in a sense. And when you, I thought of that when you just thought about pornography. When you talk about pornography, and I think that the human being does crave the body, right? Mm -hmm. Um but not in that way. The body that we were created for was the body of Christ, right? But we yeah. were, we pursue these we pursue these these um, these fake goods, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and pornography is always about parts, never the whole. There's a saying attributed to Saint John Paul II, and I can't I've never been able to locate it. And I've I've talked to Jason Everett about this, and he can't find it either. But it kind of expresses the heart of the theology of the body, and it's. It, the quote goes like this, the problem with pornography is not that it shows too much, but that it shows too little. Yeah, that's, that's this whole <laughs> depths of the depths of the person totally missing. So the, you're, you're uh, going after a part instead of loving and respecting the whole as an end and not as a means to something else like my selfishness. Yeah. So we may have gotten too deep too fast. I'm going to slow down <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> just just a just a little bit. Look, shiny metal uh, object. <laughs> but so you've like you said on on Coffin Nation, man, you've inter interviewed a lot of people over the years. Um, just real quick, I mean, who are some of your who are some of your favorite guests over over the years? Oh, that's a tricky one. Um, well, the, the main show, the Patrick Coffin Show, is coming up on 200 episodes. Uh, Coffin Nation members, uh, guests rather, in a uh, session called Transform You, which is a masterclass with an expert in some element of personal transformation. Uh, I can start there. Uh, off the bat, uh, a guy who wrote a book that changed my life named David Allen, 
The book is called Getting Things Done, The Art of Stress-Free Productivity. Uh, David was one of my first uh, Transform You guests. Um, Jordan B. Peterson was uh, one of the early adopters as well. We talked about his self-authoring suite. Yeah. Um, there's a, an Israeli-born researcher named Nir Eyal, E-Y-A-L, wrote an incredible book called Indistractable. Mm-hmm. Basically, <laughs> it was I was sort of born to read this book with my ADHD traits. Um, <laughs> uh, another name that comes to mind is Dr. Suzanne Bars, the daughter of the f- famous psychiatrist Conrad Bars yeah. uh, on The Power of Affirmation. Um, boy, it's a long list. How long's your show? <laughs> <laughs> I want to play this. I want to play this quick um, yep. clip of um, Dr. Peterson. He's one of my favorite interviews that I saw you do, and this one was unique because you oftentimes you don't get to um, ask your guest, mm-hmm. um, you know, why are they Catholic or why they're not Catholic or anything like that. Sometimes you just have conversations that don't go in that direction. But in this, this talk with Jordan Peter Peterson, you did get there. I'll play a quick um, clip right here. Yeah, well, that's a great question. Like, I do believe that there are places where the mythological and the literal touch. Mm-hmm. I, I mentioned one of those earlier, the idea that spoken truth, logos, yep. creates habitable order out of chaos. I think that is literally and metaphorically true. Yeah. So how do, how do we how did you get to that point where you were ready to ask um, Dr. Peterson? You know, what's up? Why aren't you Catholic? I think it's um, comes down to a matter of being trusted by the subject. I had first connected with Dr. Peterson in September of 2016 when he was a virtually unknown professor up at the University of Toronto, and he was bravely and I thought brilliantly standing up to the. The, the brigade that wants to force speech on us in the form of pronouns for people who don't identify as male or female. Okay. And so I, I reached out to him and connected quite quickly. This is before his second book was written. He made, I'm sure he didn't even think of it back then. It's now called 12 Rules for Life. Okay. And then um, he spoke in front of a Canadian Senate committee, and I invited him back on the Patrick Coffin Show to talk uh, with a Canadian senator named uh, Senator Don Plett of Manitoba. That was my first split screen interview. And then that was a sit down in Los Angeles. Um, and it was a natural progression of the conversation because we were talking about this idea of logos, of intelligence and design and order and speech. And his Bible lectures have lit a fire under so many people around the world, especially the Old Testament stories from Adam, Eve, Cain, Abel, um, Moses, and Abraham, and so on. And, and you don't hit these, you don't hear these themes hit very often in Catholic preaching, maybe in a cursory way at Mass if the priest has done some extra prep for it. But yeah. um, especially the first, let's say, 10 or 11 chapters of Genesis, Dr. Peterson has just opened up a rich well of. Uh, the application of depth psychology and the thoughts of people like Carl Jung on the sacred text. And the fact that he did it as someone who doesn't necessarily believe that the Bible is uh, inspired by God and is inerrant, um, in a way, makes his his teaching come from a place of no other agenda except for this is my take on the text. And I think that explains why, even though at the time, at least, he said he's not really a churchgoer, he has produced a lot of returns to the faith, especially in young people. And maybe maybe 70, 30 men think a lot of men uh, warm up to the message that he has and his willingness to get into uncomfortable 
places and and uh, in conversations for the sake of a greater good. So I've I've always admired him from afar, and um, I was glad it went down. Yeah, that's pretty. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. Um, another one of my my uh, favorite interviews with you was with you uh, was a recent person who's really caught on. You know, caught a lot of people's attention recently mm-hmm. because of. Um, some things she's doing out there with pro life and with Black Lives Matter is Bevelyn Beatty. Let's play Bevelyn Beatty. Yeah, yeah. Let's play quick. Hundred percent true. I mean, it's the filler because really all of us come out of the womb needing a father. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the 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 male figure is that substitute that comes in and basically that trainer that kind of preps us to go to the Lord. Uh, to go to God as the father, but uh, we're literally the gateway, you know, parents are the gateway to leading these children to God. So when these parents are disrupted, either they're absent or they're totally toxic and Mm -hmm. full of themselves, they distort these kids. I know for a fact, like I say that my mom was diagnosed bipolar for the the medical, the medically inclined individual, but let's be real. That's demonic possession. I was raised dealing with someone who was dealing with, with, with war at war with the demon day and night. So there were times that my mom would come home one minute, she's in a good mood. And then there's another time she's coming home and she's ready to hit us and beat us. Mm-hmm. Um, and the things she would say, it was of the devil. But as kids, we didn't understand that. We only saw the person. So yeah. so you, you've talked to a few people, um, black, black um, Protestants who or active um, people who are black conservatives. What mm-hmm. attracted you to Bevelyn's story? Uh, when I saw uh, two back-to-back videos of Bevelyn on YouTube, uh, I was astounded by a whole bunch of things at the same time. One, her courage. The, the psychological taboo against stepping out like that and splashing black paint on such a, a politically charged, emotionally volatile symbol as the words black lives matter uh, kind of covering over it not only physically with black paint but but verbally with jesus matters i thought took tremendous courage and then i saw her up in one of these chad zones i believe it was portland um explaining a few things to a a well-meaning white woman about the history of the democratic party and slavery and and i thought if i can just connect with this with this brave lady it would be great and uh i did and, and she came on she's very open to more things, more truth, um, yeah. more Jesus. And I, I just wish more Catholics had her gloves off approach because it's, <laughs> you know, the time for having discussions in the parlor, we're, we're beyond that. This is a street fight now and she kind of gets it. <laughs> yeah, but both her and Dr. Peterson, they both engage in a culture war in different ways. And I think that's a really a dynamic contrast um, between those two. Mm-hmm. But but the culture, the culture war, is it when you look at the people who are Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, you look at some of the things that, that were going on. We've seen what happens to the, the Father Altman recently. Uh, we see some of these bishops basically giving Joe Biden a pass, <laughs> you know, and I just think it's going to be a, a tremendous scandal if Joe Biden were elected president. And he because he I don't think he's so much like um some of the people we've seen in Canada, I think Joe Biden, um, I think he really believes that he is a Catholic. That's like one of the things that he, he puts in the forefront. And so for him to represent himself as a faithful or a devout Catholic, as they say, mm-hmm. if he were to become president, I think that's a scandal. I mean, I think that I think I think 
you know, that, that demands some sort of response. And for the bishops to not be responding ahead of time is, is something. But is that a sign that the, the, the culture war is gaining steam now? Of course. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the person to begin that scandal, in my very humble opinion, is John F. Kennedy, who said to a group of Houston Baptists, in, in essence, don't worry, I won't be a good Catholic. Don't, you know, I'm not going to be controlled by a, a foreign potentate in Rome. Um, I was elected for Americans only, which on one level is true. He's not supposed to be a mole for the Catholic Church. He's, he's a, a secular leader, and I understand that. But uh, when you look at what happened to the Kennedy dynasty with respect to the Democratic Party in the late 1960s, they totally flip-flopped on essentials. Uh, his brother, Ted Kennedy, sounds like if you read what he wrote in the late 60s, it could have been written by Father Frank Pavone or me or you. Total flip-flop. And the flip-flop happened at the hands of a Jesuit named Father Robert Drynan. He was a multi-term congressman from Massachusetts, which is against canon law. Uh, John Paul II asked him to, to step down. He didn't. And it's from Father Drynan that we get the notion of, of personally opposed but. And that, that embedded itself as an ism inside the Democrat Catholic mind. And we've been living with it since. Uh, I call it the, the Pontius Pilate protocol, right? Pontius Pilate <laughs> was personally opposed but. but. He says it seven times. I know this man is innocent. But. Yeah, 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 yeah. The Catholic but. I'm a Catholic but. You yeah. know, when it comes to, you know, contraception, I, you know, I don't know. But, yes, yeah, so let, <laughs> let's talk about these Jesuits. I think for, that, for whatever reason, um, I ended up talking a lot about bad Jesuit priests on my, my YouTube channel. And they, they, I think they just seem to find me. Or maybe it's because I think sometimes maybe I don't have something to talk about. And so I just go to Google and I type in um, what has... What's the craziest thing a Jesuit has said lately? And then somebody comes up, right? I mean, right. <laughs> it's like looking up. If you go to, to an online word search and, and look up Florida man, yeah, you're going to get crazy. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the same with Jesuit. <laughs> Jesuit but, um, man. And I think, you know, a lot of people, maybe some people, you guys are listening. I know you guys want to probably put in the com box now, you know, what about um, this Jesuit or this? I think that, you know, you can always find. A couple good guys in prison. I think you can always find a couple good shaped pieces of horse dung, whatever. But at the, but I'm not talking about just. I'm talking about what I'm asking Patrick here is just the ethos of the organization itself. And a little background. Let's give a little background. I mean, uh, sort of Jesuit Society of Jesus. They're founded by um, Ignatius of Aloya, uh, 1534. Um, he was a student at a university. He gets together with some other students. They form, they all take a vow of poverty and chastity. In 1540, I think they, they form a religious order, get, they, they get approval by... Um, Paul III, I think. Yeah, yeah Paul III in 1541. Yep. And Natius becomes, he becomes the first general superior, the first black pope um, <laughs> that, that, they're later, yeah. that they'll later be called. And in so in a short time, these Jesuits, they're being sent around the world. They're, they're missionaries. They're starting universities. They're helping Catholics convert back from Protestantism. So they're doing some work in the Counter-Reformation. Yep. Um, they're running charities. But by the 1700s, the Jesuits had become really influential, really rich, really wealthy, really powerful. And a lot of the European countries didn't, they thought they had too much influence. And they started to suppress them. Um, and the Pope, uh, that's Pope Clements and uh, Pope Clement XIV in 1773, 
he dissolves them all together. But 41 years later, Pope Pius VIII, he brings them back in 1814. Um, and so they're reestablished. But again, by 18, 1838, these guys are in Massachusetts. They, they're selling off all their slaves, 272 of them, to pay off the debts of, of Georgetown University. So, so what's going on, Patrick, from, from the 1800s until now? What happened to the Jesuits? Corruptio optimi, excuse me, a corruptio optimi pessima. That's what happened to the Jesuits. The corruption of the best is the worst. Hmm. At the time of the Counter-Reformation, they were an absolute stellar powerhouse. Look at the Jesuits that St. That Ignatius inspired. St. Robert Bellarmine, uh, Canisius, Edmund Campion, uh, the, all the Jesuits that came over from the New World, pr pr principally from France, St. Isaac Jogues, St. Jean de Brébeuf. I've been to their shrine in Midland, Ontario. I've seen the skull of this great Jesuit, Jean de Brébeuf, who was boiled alive by the... Uh, the uh, Iroquois Indians, they were in warfare with the Huron. Uh, they had red hot stones tied to ropes put around their necks to mock the, the rosary. St. Isaac Jogues had his, uh, one of his uh, index fingers chopped off because they knew he wouldn't be able to say mass. So he, he, fly, he sails back to France and his superior says, you know, well done, good and faithful servant. And Father Jogues said, no, I'm, I'm going back. And he did go back. And within three weeks, he was martyred. It's the blood of those martyrs that was the seed of the faith that you and I enjoy now in upstate New York and Quebec and, and uh, Ontario. So it's incredibly moving that the, these men deeply in love with Jesus Christ and willing to, to go to literally, literally the limits of the new world to bring the gospel, to translate uh, the gospel into their languages and so on. Um, then you move into the more recent history and the Jesuits since about 1965, that was really kind of the high watermark. Okay. Of membership, and it's the Jesuits have never failed to lose members since then. With in one little sixty-five, sixty-five was the high point. Yeah, about okay. th over thirty-six thousand Jesuits. Oh, and then there was a, a small uptick in eighty-four to eighty-six, and another small uptick after Pope Francis uh, became Pope. Uh, makes sense; he was a Jesuit. Yeah. But uh, apart from that, the Jesuit order is in free fall. They have been suppressed in the past, and I. I hope they, they can be suppressed again. I wouldn't want to see them dissolved, but they're, they've run riot in higher education. Uh, the term Jesuitical means something that's kind of weaselly, sounds Catholic, you know, got some holy water on it, but it's not truly Catholic in its heart. And they're still brilliant. I mean, they're educators. That's kind of the charism yeah. along with preaching. But they have embedded themselves in worldly systems and wanting the plaudits of the world over much. Uh, you look at people like Father James Martin, who's permitted to prance around the world selling the LGTB agenda with apparent, apparently the, the applause or at least the implicit support of the Holy Father himself, who, as we mentioned, is a Jesuit. Yeah. So it's a problem. Um, they've abdicated all kinds of positions that you cannot square with the teachings of the Catholic Church. And... I think it's getting so bad now, David, that it's people are being red pilled. I mean, you can't you can't hold these positions and also say that you're a faithful Catholic, which is doubly ironic because uh, the the black robes, the Jesuits of the old school, had a, a fourth vow of you know fidelity to the Pope. They were very loyal soldiers of Christ in the Catholic Church. 
and their their order i don't know if they can recover just through the sheer weight of numbers now they've just gone the average age i believe is about 65 or 66 which is not a good sign for your future wow see i I did not i did not know that they they weren't doing well with um new vocations to the order i did not know that yeah there's quickly there's a there's a sociological study about this by two jesuits it's called passionate uncertainty passionate uncertainty so they're kind of embracing the problem and kind of trying to domesticate it or 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 spin it positively yeah hey susan has a question here a couple questions that i want to get to real quick into I want to ask you a couple more things about the Jesuits, but um, Susan is asking here, I mean, maybe you can see it on the screen. Would a Jesuit who was ashamed to be a Jesuit be able to change to a different order? Or is it once in order, always in order? No, the answer is yes. You can leave the Jesuits. It's called being exclustrated. You'd have oh, to get okay. permission from Rome, but you're, you're, it's not set like the ordination to the priesthood is set. You know, once a priest, always a priest. Right. Even if you're laicized, of course, you that mark on your soul is permanent. But yeah, you can you can change. It happens. Hmm. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yep. It's kind of like people. Well, it's not kind of like that. It's not a religious order, but sometimes people are in the army and then they realize, you know, man, the guys in the air force have it a lot better, and so they switch. All right. <laughs> yeah. Or as the Marines would say. You know, someone's got a show for the Marines around. Might as well be the Air Force. <laughs> All right. Um, Christine Vonis, she's asking a question here. Oh, it's, it's more more like a, a statement. I, I thought this. You know, back during the the, the, the Reformation or every every point in time in church history, we, we, there was a crisis. Um, you always saw a new religious order being formed. You, um, you saw the monasteries with Clooney, and then from Reformation, you see the Dominicans and the Jesuits, mm, the Franciscans, mm-hmm. they come along. But here in 2020, there's a crisis in the Catholic Church globally. Um, it's scary. And I don't see a religious order coming on board. And like Christine Vaughn says, we need a new religious order with fervor and fire for Jesus. Um, and she says, maybe Father Altman can start with. Um, this is my kind of comment, Christine. Uh, uh, amen to the power of 10. Yes. And I would not be surprised that right now as we speak, although we don't know about it, there's someone right now being inspired to start just that kind of order. I don't know if it's Father Altman, but the, the crisis of truth is getting so obvious now. And it's um, something that goes down into the parish level where so few Catholics who warm the pews know what's going on. Look look how many Catholics have been culled. I hate to say I predicted this, but when, when the lockdown began, I thought the 80% of pew warmers who don't really know what, in, you know, a, a intentional discipleship, a relationship with Jesus Christ, knowledge that God loves you, that he has a plan for your life, you can finish the sentence, I'm Catholic because, with enough confidence, those people are not coming back. And the pure research people and the people at the Center for Applied Research for the Apostolate, they, they haven't. They haven't come back. And the reason is they don't have a motive to come back. So here, here's God raising up someone like a father, uh, James Altman, who, who's, God willing, going to be on my show. We're, we're plotting uh, a, a long-form conversation about wow. his priesthood and what's going on. Um, Father James Martin was very triggered by that, and he he docks the area. Basically, is what happened. So, uh, local minions were trundled to harass the bishop and to make life hellacious for Father Altman. But I think they picked on the wrong guy uh, because he's operating out of total fearlessness, total love for Christ, come what may. And I think this is the kind of boldness the church needs. This is the kind of thing that makes people go, "What? 
<laughs> he's not only did he say that out loud, he's really good at saying it. Wow. Now, some people are going to be triggered. This is the thing that Christine and brings up in her question. Fervor and fire for Jesus always brings a backlash. There's always going to be pushback. It doesn't mean that the devil's going to destroy it, but it means you become a person of interest. And this right. is a sign of something going right. <laughs> Right, right. Uh, when the New York Times starts waxing eloquent about how, how wonderful we are, that's uh, we're failures. So, uh, oh, Christine's lips to God's ears, that would be a, a, a great sign that God is still with his people, raising up saints at the very point where it seems the darkest. Yeah. Um, we got Bruce City coming in, um, one of our favorite anonymous people, but he seems pretty cool, so we'll, we'll put his comment here. Um, or her. Um, women may like Bruce City as well. Um, uh, maybe but, doesn't identify as binary. I don't know. We we, we, we can't know. know. <laughs> Bruce City. Go ahead, Bruce City. <laughs> but um, says they do extremely well in terms of providing secular secular education, but they have become too secular modern, too much secular modern men. Belief in aliens, gay proms on Marquette University. Hey, Patrick, what what impact did the Lando Lakes? document i think it was um in the 1960 1967 the yeah. lando lakes um so theodore hesburgh from notre dame he gets together with a bunch of catholic educators mm -hmm. and they craft this document that's supposed to redefine the relationship between catholic universities and the catholic church and the catholic universities and the secular secular society yeah. what impact does that have on i guess most jesuit schools i think they're just trash right now High schools yes. and universities, just trash. What yeah. impact does the Lando Lakes have on um, Jesuit higher education? Massive and tsunami-esque. That's the answer. The Lando Lakes statement was the Magna Carta for why we can't have nice things. It's the it's the founding document that that enshrines and baptizes and uh, affirms dissent from Catholic teaching. It was uh, done in Land Lakes, uh, Wisconsin, and it was implemented very quickly. It had uh, dissenters. It had a couple of non-Catholics. And it's totally opposed to the vision of Catholic education laid down by people like Thomas Aquinas, like Ignatius himself, like uh, St. John Henry Newman, where the very idea of the university is a Catholic invention. And Catholic education is, is distinguished by this mark. We examine both sides of the question. We study Aquinas and Aristotle and uh, St. Bonaventure, but we also study Rousseau and Nietzsche and, and Descartes. You know, we, we look at both sides. The Land O'Lakes statement, uh, in effect, was the alienation of the Catholic Church away from higher education. So there's a kind of uh, an embarrassment about being attached to the magisterium. Okay. It was a vision of, of academic freedom that was totally untethered from the teaching voice of the church. And okay. straight line from 67 to the plummeting of all the teaching orders, really, with a couple of uh, exceptions, like the Franciscan OFMs, the Jesuits, the Dominicans, they've all had uh, uh, their influence at the hands of the Land O'Lakes statement. Okay. So the Land O'Lakes was kind of like their attempt to compete with other universities like your, your Penn State's and your Brown's. Yes. In your, in your Harvard's, they wanted to be scholar. They wanted to be accepted among that scholarly crowd of academics. 100%. There's a book about this by a sociologist, uh, formerly from uh, USD. She's now at Franciscan University. Her name is Dr. Ann Hendershot. 
uh, Dr. Hendershot's book is called Status Envy, and it's about exactly this. So Notre Dame and Georgetown, uh, some of the uh, old line established Catholic universities, they wanted to be like Yale. They wanted okay. to be the, you know, uh, a Princeton with a pretty chapel, which if you look at Notre Dame is exactly what they are today. Massive usurious rates of tuition, huge endowments, uh, pretty chapel, great for photos, but um, you will not find uh, faithfulness to perennial Catholic teaching as an as a institutional priority. Exhibit A, inviting Barack Obama to address the students right. and get an honorary doctorate. It's just, right. That was a long-winded answer. I hope that helps. You know, yeah. And I, I, I think on all these universities, on all these universities, perhaps I'm sure you, you can find some Catholics and there is some sort of Catholic community. And good, and good professors there too. That needs to be said. But we're talking about just the ethos of these universities themselves and like this climate and culture of anti-Catholic um, thought. Yeah. Hey, Dinah Gates, King Gates. She's um she's been on my she's been a fan of my Facebook page for a long time. I don't know what this question means. I don't think I'm smart enough. I just have a master's in theology. That's it, an accounting degree. So, but she's asking, <laughs> any thoughts on the on the ideas for culture found in the works of Plino Correa de Oliveira? Yeah, uh, okay. Plino Correa de Oliveira, uh, Brazilian. I think he was from Brazil. I know we spoke and wrote in Portuguese, uh, the founder of uh, Tradition Property Family. I'm not a student of his works. Uh, I do know that they're very active on campuses. And he's sort of a big picture thinker. Uh, his stuff reminds me of another, uh, well, he's a layman, but there's a priest, uh, a Jesuit as it turns out, Jesuit of the old school, named Father Walter Ong, O-N-G. And he wrote about worldviews and the impact of language on culture and so on. And so... Um, Oliveira is um, kind of one of those big tectonic shift cultural guys who, who has kind of a long view. He, he wrote over several decades. Um, but as I say, I'm, I don't even have the, the accounting degree, David, so you're ahead of me. <laughs> Dude, um, one more question before I, I, I get to um, – I have a uh, – I want to transition a little bit. But do the Jesuits – this is Robert Corbin. Mm -hmm. um, tune in early. Thanks, Robert. You were you – were, you tuned in early to the YouTube broadcast. I think we had some miscommunication about what time it started, but um, thanks for hanging in there. And so he asked, do the Jesuits essentially rule the church um, now that the Pope is one? That's an excellent way of putting it. I hadn't thought of couching it that way. <laughs> I would say, uh, to use some fancy-sounding Latin, de jure, no, de facto, yes. So in law, the Pope... See, there's a funny dilemma they had to work out when he was elected because Jesuits take a vow of, of obedience to the Pope. However, if you're the Pope and a Jesuit, are you looking in the mirror and obeying yourself? What does that even mean? Um, but since his formation was very, you know, steeped in Jesuit thinking and, and uh, let's face it, he was a product of 60s and 70s Catholicism in South America, very sympathetic toward things like liberation theology. Yeah. Certainly, the left-wing Jesuit problem is now a global problem because the Pope himself comes from that milieu. It's not imaginable, just take one example of many, it's not imaginable that John Paul II 
or uh, Benedict XVI would permit Father James Martin to fly around the world advocating for an agenda and a lifestyle that's completely opposed to human reason, scripture, and tradition. Impossible. And yet he's, his boat is floated and he's defended and protected. Right. But what do we do, Patrick? I mean, it's not, I mean, it's not like, you know, all of the laity can get together, you know, we get, um, Bishop Strickland, you know, some, some of the, or, um, Vigano. It's not like we can just go shut down all these universities. Uh, we can't pull a black lives or burn loot murder rather type, type of thing and just shut them all down. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's not like we can just shut down the, their houses, their seminaries. I mean, so what do we do with the Jesuits? What's, what's a reasonable, or um, ambitious mm -hmm. or audacious thing that we can do to really respond to Christ's call that we um, that we admonish um, our fellow brothers and sisters, and that um, we don't we stop having people who are really offending Christ and His church, trying mm -hmm. intentionally trying to destroy Christ and His church. How do we stop this? What can we do? I think the best synonym for macro is micro. I can't fix the Jesuits. I can barely fix my German Shepherd Chow dog scout. Um, our ability to influence outside our own selves is very, very limited. Um, I like to say that I'm, I'm more in sales than in, than in management. Uh, there are decisions that bishops and cardinals and popes have to make that I don't have to make. I have to make my own decisions in my orbit of life. I have to be, you know, husband, father in my little, you know, close to the bullseye. Yeah. Um, but it does help to know the deposit of faith and to know what you're talking about when you finish the sentence, I'm Catholic because. Uh, if you, I mean, there's some people who really don't, they don't really get that Pope Francis is uh, a terrible teacher of the faith. They, right. my, my litmus test for people who think Pope Francis is, you know, he hung the moon is, would you let your teenager learn theology from him? Which side of the cultural war here in America do you think he's on? Like all, all of his picks here in the United States are seem to be flag waving at least for for uh, a Biden presidency, yeah. which says a lot about how low information the church has become yeah. collectively. But there's lots we can't do. There's lots we can't control. We can only uh, try our best every single day to set set aside time aside time rather to spend time. In the presence of God, get to know Scripture, learn the deposit of faith, learn that there were actually twenty other ecumenical conferences before uh, councils, rather before Vatican II. <laughs> right, right. Um, I think a lot of Catholics have a, a Protestant attitude toward the Church, and, and this is what I mean: they kind of mentally go from Jesus, the Apostles, Resurrection, oh, Vatican II, like Protestants go from the Resurrection to Martin Luther. We're missing right. centuries of growth and development. And I think it helps to have that uh, that long view that we've been in crises like this. We've had almost forty anti popes through history. We've had bad popes, and and the Holy Spirit is ever working things out, yeah. uh, often in surprising ways. And Elizabeth, she agrees with you. She says, "I think that the the answer is catechesis. The more Catholics that understand the faith, the more people who will want to stand, who won't stand for this." Baloney, as Father Alton mm -hmm. would say. Yeah, yeah. Catechesis is key. I think one degree 
before that or beneath catechesis is evangelization. And I think the distinction is important. Um, here's the way I put it. I, I remember one of my favorite professors ever was Father Fred Miller. He was an adjunct professor at Franciscan University. And I, I took a, a course from him. And I remember I sat next to my, my good friend, Jeff Cavins. It was back in the day. It doesn't matter when. I'll just... I'll date both you and I, David, if I mention how long ago it was. But uh, Father Miller said that the devil's perfectly orthodox. Mm. He's fully trained in catechesis. Mm. He knows all the teachings of the church. Mm. Right? It says in, in the letter of James, the demons believe but tremble. So uh, orthodoxy is necessary, but it's not sufficient. We have to know that Jesus Christ died for our sins, that he's not a mythological figure from the past, that he's alive, that he's present in the sacraments, that it's all real, and that we have to decide for ourselves. We can't rent mom and dad's faith forever. At some point, it's our own two feet with our own, the consequences of our own choice. So I agree with the catechesis, but I think it's uh, it, not quite at the finish line. I hope that do you helps. Believe in, do you believe in boycotts? That's a very good question. Um, the short answer is boycotts can work if people understand the why behind the boycotts. I do not believe in uh, petition letter drives like change.org. They're worthless. They don't, bishops don't care. CEOs don't care. What they care about is people who write individual letters saying, I'm not buying X. Because these, like, whether it's Disney, whether it's Netflix, by the way, I do support a boycott of Netflix. Netflix is now officially a child pornography producer. With the show Cuties, this is grooming for pedophiles. No question about it. I dumped uh, Netflix last summer when uh, Stranger Things began to force minor actors into blaspheming and dropping F-bombs. Yeah. Um, and then you've got a gay Jesus. I mean, I even hate saying this, but the, the Brazil version of Netflix had a, a homosexual Jesus character. Now we have the Cuties. So I think Netflix... Is a, is a terrific object for a boycott because this crosses political lines. Democrats and Republicans can both get behind attacking uh, pedophilia and sexual you know, crimes. For now. In fact, cutie, cuties actually might qualify as child pornography. Yeah, it might. That's a good caveat. I saw a meme you might appreciate, David. It said, uh, conservatives in 2030, taxpayers should not fund child porn. <laughs> right? right right so so yes to boycotts with a caveat they have to be they have to be grassroots and not organized by a group of signature gatherers yeah yeah so we're, we're winding down um just want to talk to you about a couple more things get a couple more questions in we're coming up on an hour here i don't want to keep you past that i know it's your bedtime um but what do you think about this, everyone? This is I found this on the Twitter. I don't know if you're still on the Twitter, Patrick. I, I um, left I left the pool of cess yeah. on uh, September eighth. So yeah, okay, yeah, you might have seen this. So you know the whole Corona thing. So what used to stand for the greater glory of God um, yeah. is now a um, awareness in mask, D distance, G greater good. That comes to you from um, the Jesuits. McQuaid. At least at one of the universities. David, this is providential that you're sharing this with me because I've, I've made a habit now. I'm, I'm collecting photos for a gallery of this kind of misbegotten propagandizing and, and how, how our superiors who have our greater good in mind 
uh, are teaching us, like little children, how to, you know, put these masks on. Uh, that's the dumbest thing I've seen. But it's not only dumb, it's so it's such a snapshot of the Jesuits. Ad Mariam Dei Gloriam, reduced to a sign about the diaper face. Masks don't work, people. This is not even a debatable scientific point. And even if you have an H95, you are not stopping the novel coronavirus. The micron width is so much thinner that I don't even have one here. But, you know, who thinks something's going to work if you can put it in your purse, in your wallet, in your pocket, on your, on your passenger seat and use it multiple times? The mask is basically at this point a sign of your, your, your subjection to the oligarchs. Um, that is a, that's a great sign. And uh, by the way, we're organizing a virtual conference uh, October 30th and 31st called Unmasking COVID-19. Oh, I'm wow. putting in one place all the, as many doctors as I can find, doctors, researchers, scientists, journalists who've been ritually shamed, shellacked, have their jobs threatened, deleted by big tech, uh, because wow. their voices need to be heard. This is not following the scientific method. If these, all these doctors are wrong, then refute them. Banning them is a very bad optic for people. And yeah. uh, so it's all going to be in one place. So we're doing uh, an intro welcome video on it. So just keep in touch at patrickhoffman.media and get yourself on the wait list. I can't wait for this. It's something that uh, everyone in the world is, I think, open to hearing at least the other side from the grand Fauci, Burks, Redfield, CDC grand narrative. Yeah, so, and when is this again, Patrick? When is your time frame? The last, yeah, the last two days of October, October, Friday the 30th and Saturday the 31st. L.A. County and Ventura in California have, have both canceled trick-or-treating. Can't do it. Wow. So we're part of the timing there. Wow. So. All right. Uh, I'm going to take a few more questions from you guys uh, for Patrick. And thanks again for Patrick com for coming on Talking Catholic. And um, it looks like everyone's happy to have you here. Talk to you. I'm going to get to just a few more of you guys' mm -hmm. questions. Sure. Um, are serious Jesuits... Um, like Father Mitch Packwell, who I know you know, um, having a hard time living in their communities? I think asking the question is answering the question. <laughs> um, but most Jesuits who are Orthodox, who love Jesus and his church, are very circumspect. They're not going to complain. They're, they're good men. They, they don't want to slag their superiors, at least not in public. Um, I've never heard of a Jesuit uh, openly whining about their liberal superiors, but I do hear about hear from liberal Jesuits complaining and whining about Catholic teaching. So that there's a big difference. Uh, I think Orthodox Jesuits are, are suffering particularly more than lay people who are kind of observing it because of the high calling and the origins of the amazing order. Look at the late Father Paul Mankowski, absolute rock star, mm -hmm. just died last week, too, too young at 66. Uh, a tremendous scholar, uh, a, a lover of, of Jesus and his church. And he, he never went public with his complaints. He, he humbly submitted Father Joseph Fessio. You know, they, they've taken their discipline and just called it all as, as loss for Christ's sake. Yeah, yeah. And Michael's, he made a point here that I don't know if I completely disagree um, he says, mm -hmm. why did not the Dominicans go down the same path as the Jesuits since both are orders producing and produce theological giants during Vatican? Now, recently, the Dominicans did have a superior who 
Um, can't recall his name, but that would be the 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 Master General of the Order. Yeah, has, uh, yeah, yeah, no, Timothy Radcliffe. Radcliffe, Radcliffe. Yeah, hundred percent homosexualist. Right, right. How'd that so, happen? Yeah, and so I, I mean, I get I get Michael's point. We don't see the same filth coming out of the Dominicans that we at the same level that we see with the Jesuits. But that's yeah. true. But um, that's but they true. have an but, issue themselves as well. It's that that the Dominican question is often best understood province by province. I, I don't think it's the same global impact. I, I, I'm not calling for the for the Dominicans to be suppressed. There's some amazing saintly, scholarly Dominicans doing amazing work. Uh, I, I'm privileged to, to know some of them as friends. Uh, let me embarrass two of them. <laughs> Maybe they'll they'll say shut shut up about me. Um, Thomas Joseph White, OP, uh, James Dominic Brent. A former atheist, just a magnificent uh, priest of Jesus Christ, and and yeah. super brains as well. So I, I wouldn't want to put them in the same category. That's a good. Yeah. That's a good caveat. Definitely, yeah. I definitely, I definitely love love the Jesuits, especially from the Providence, Saint Joseph Providence, where you know I really, um, I was discerning becoming a Dominican at one point in time. So, do you, do you mean you said Jesuits? Did you mean Dominicans? Dominicans. Yeah. Did I say Jesuits? Yeah. Oh, Freudian slip. I deserve to eat some popcorn for that one. <laughs> I'm gonna take a sip of my coffee <laughs> with my cool. You think, you think? Um. Final question, Patrick. Do you think mm -hmm. the Jesuits may be suppressed one day? That's a good question. One can only hope. It, it would be a future pontiff, maybe the next one. Oh, I don't know. Obviously, Pope Francis isn't going to suppress himself. That, that's that, that's, yeah. that's 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 true. Or disband or. Um, yeah. From our, bul from our bulging duh file, <laughs> there's ha Hallelujah. That's an amazing name. Yeah, that is. All right, Patrick, thanks for coming on Talking Catholic. Um, so a couple things I want you guys to remember as we close up. Um, make sure you guys get over to Coffin Nation. Um, make sure you, you sign up. Uh, become one of his exclusive members over there. Get access to a lot of the good things he's doing over on, on Coffin Nation. He has a conference coming up um, that you, you'll be able to see if you go to Coffin Nation. At least bookmark it. At least in his in his YouTube channel too. Make sure you subscribe and also hit that bell so you'll yeah. be update, updated with new notifications over on his YouTube channel. And um, so find out because uh, Patrick's one of those guys we got we got we got to keep up with. Because um, he always has some great interviews and some great content that um, is hard catching up once you miss what's <laughs> going on over there. Thanks, David. I appreciate it. Always a, a honor to talk to you, sir. All right. Well, guys, hope you guys enjoyed this. And until then, next time, blessings and shalom to you.